Let's take our Bible tonight. We're going to be in uh, Psalm chapter number 19. Psalm chapter number 19. And uh, we're going to look at uh, the whole chapter, verse 1 down through verse 14. And uh, this is one of my favorite psalms, I think. I mean, there's a lot of psalms, I think, we could call our favorites. Uh, How many favorites can you have, right, when it comes to the Bible? Uh, But uh, this one's always one that has uh, stuck out to me and uh, as it reveals the glory of God in his revelation. And that's what I've titled the message tonight is uh, the glory of God in his revelation. And uh, we're going to look at this together. And I pray to encourage you and uh, and challenge us as well because you come to the end of the chapter, there's a great challenge to us as believers. But notice with me in Psalm 19, let's look at verse number 1. We'll come down through verse number 14. The psalmist says, which is, which is David, he says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the, ends of the, to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. When we come to the scriptures, what is the central focus throughout the whole Bible? Well, the central focus from Genesis to Revelation is one thing. It's the glory of God. The glory of God. Now, there's multitudes of topics and subjects throughout Scripture that tackle different things, but central to each of those, the root to each of them, is the glory of God. So we can conclude that all of time and eternity is founded upon the glory of God, and we can also conclude what that means for us in our lives. It means that we also exist for the glory of God. Now, in the Westminster Larger Catechism, it opens with the first question, and the first question is, what is the chief and highest end of man? We've probably heard this almost as a slogan. It's commonly said, but the answer is this. Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. And I love that summary. That's such a true summary of our existence So your life purpose is for the glory of God. So when we think about the glory of God, we see it throughout this text. What is this glory? Why does it all go to God? David says here, the heavens declare the glory of God. What is this glory being recognized here? Well, glory is used in a variety of ways throughout the scriptures, and there's typically three aspects in the Old and New Testament we can see. The first concept focuses on God's presence, as in, 
God's glory in His uh, immediate manifestation his peep, to His people, often in a visible form. You'll read in the Old Testament of Him appearing in a glorious form as a cloud or the pillar of fire or a radiant light. But then there's also a way in which the Bible uses glory language to speak of the greatness of God, the majesty, the splendor uh, of God and His infinite nature. And then we see a third usage of the word glory in that glory language referring to that eschatological state, the end state of us, when we say that we will be in glory, meaning that we'll be among Him uh, and with Him. So to speak of God's glory in this text manifests the, the splendor, the majesty, the importance, and the greatness of God. And so this is important for us to realize because mankind naturally likes to do what? Likes to try to claim glory unto himself in a variety of ways. But the glory here in Psalm 19 is not about man or for man. It is all about the person of God alone. And so the glory of God is revealed to humanity through various means. And through this text, we see God's glory through his revelation. Now, what do I mean by revelation? I'm not talking about the book of Revelation, although that is important. I'm talking about revelation in the sense of God revealing himself. When we think of the revelation of God, we're talking about something being made known, God making himself known to his creation, to humanity, okay? And there's two primary ways in which he reveals himself to humanity, and that's uh, what you'll find as you study the scripture. God has revealed himself to mankind through uh, his creation and also his scriptures. And so I want to look at these two things and then look at the end of the message and the last portion of this text, the response to his revelation. So notice with me firstly in our notes tonight, uh, I want you to see the natural revelation of God. The natural revelation of God. And this is what David starts out with, is the natural revelation of God. That is his creation and his created order, what God has brought into existence out of nothing. Now, notice two things about creation, all right? These are important for us to recognize. Creation is an unmistakable witness of the glory of God. It's an unmistakable witness of the glory of God. Now, he starts in verse 1, and David says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, what are the heavens? Well, the heavens here, is, is, we often speak of heaven as the place we're going to and the place of paradise, but uh, that certainly testifies the glory of God. But you and I can't see that right now, right? So when he's talking about the heavens, he's talking about uh, basically everything that you see when you look up. <laughs> if you go outside and you look up, what are you going to see? You're going to see the blue sky. You're going to see the clouds. You're going to see the sun. You're going to see the moon. You're going to see the stars. Uh, and if you've got a telescope, you're going to see on out into the stars and galaxies and sort all those sorts of things. So when you look up and what you see there, that's what you see as the heavens. It's the sky and the, and the stars and all that you can see up, in, uh, up, in the, uh, up above the earth of God's creation. Now, with the naked eye, we can see more than our mind can understand. You ever go out on a clear night and just see a night when the stars are just radiant and beautiful? Uh, last night, I was just standing out on the deck, and the moon was full, it was bright, and uh, you, just, you just look at it, and you wonder, and you just take it in. Uh, that's the creation of God, right? But then also, with the advancement of technology and, and telescopes and being able to view out, uh, we see even more that we can't comprehend. 
uh, it's overwhelming how much we can see uh, even with technology today. And I didn't plan this sermon to be at this week when you've heard a lot about the James Webb Telescope, but uh, by all means, I'll, I'll mention it for the sake of, of what we're looking at here. We, we re- remember the Hubble Telescope, which has been the dominant telescope uh, for viewing space for some time. But its successor now is the James Webb Telescope. It's larger in size and able to see further into space. Uh, the Hubble Telescope is about the size of a semi-truck. That's pretty big, isn't it? <laughs> but the James Webb Telescope is about the size of a tennis court, which that exceeds uh, even what, a, what, a, uh, what a, uh, um, a truck would be. But here's the claim. The claim is that the Webb Telescope is able to see back in time when galaxies were just babies closer to the Big Bang. That's what NASA's saying. Now, I have a Greek word I use to describe that, and it's called baloney. All right? Uh, that's, that's nonsense, okay? But that's, that's what you're seeing uh, right now on social media and in the news is that uh, with these new pictures and images that they're looking back in time, uh, which, uh, which I want to encourage you to understand that that, is, that would not be biblical, and I don't believe it to be scientific as well. But here's the reality. They'll never be able to view such a thing, firstly, because there's no such thing as time travel with a telescope, unless you're in a movie. Uh, number two is the Big Bang is a theory and not a truth. What you and I have today is a truth of our beginning, not a theory. The infinite God has given it to us in his revelation, his specific revelation, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything out of nothing. Ex nihilo is what is often used in the, in the original language term. It's out of nothing. And so this is why the heavens, when we look up, they point to the glory of God alone because he put them there. He's the one who put them all there, and all, as we look at the heavens, they speak of his glory, of how majestic he is, how glorious he is, how infinite he is, how important he is. One commentary references this in the glory of God. It says, to speak of God's glory is to speak of his intrinsic value, what gives him his importance. Anyone looking at the universe and understanding that God created all this by his powerful word could come to no other conclusion than that he is the most important person in existence. No one else even comes close. And that's essentially what we find, is that no one else comes close to the importance of God. Now, this month we have seen NASA reveal its pictures with the James Webb Telescope. And looking at those pictures, if you've looked at a few of them, They are mind-blowing pictures. They're glorious. They're wondrous pictures. They're taken of deep space, and they show us a vast amount of stars, galaxies far beyond us. Um, But they do not take us back in time to view a moment when random particles exploded to form galaxies over billions of years. That's just nonsense. These pictures of deep space, what do they do? They just further show us how infinitely small we are how infinitely small we are and how infinitely big God is. You know, we, we, as technology advances, we see further and we see more. You know, with every little bit, we just get a greater example of how little we are, how, in, how, how, how small we are. Now, God gave us a detailed description of creating all the details of earth, right? You read Genesis chapter 1 and you have all these specific details of 
the sun, the moon, and then you've got the water, the dry land, the plants, uh, the trees, and uh, the animals, and then man. We have all this detail about him creating us, but the vastness of space and the heavens, he doesn't really give us a whole lot of detail, does he? In fact, it's all summed up in three words. Three words. Genesis 1.16, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. That's those within our own uh, firmament. But then he says, and the stars. <laughs> That's all he gives us. And the stars. Just three words. Now, what does that show us? All the infinite wonder of space is there as a spectacle for who God is. How great he is. How awesome he is. He just put it all out there because he can, and he did, and it proves uh, to us how glorious he is. Now, what does the psalmist say here? He says the heavens do something specific. They declare the glory of God. They speak. They usher forth. They uh, communicate, proclaim to us the glory of God. I've got some Spurgeon quotes here from his, um, his commentary in the Psalms. I want to share them with you, but here's one of them. He speaks on this and says, It is not merely glory that the heavens declare, but the glory of God. See, that's where man misses it in his sinfulness. They look at the glory of the heavens, but they're not looking at the glory of God in the heavens. There's a difference. But Spurgeon says, It is not merely the glory that the, he- glory that the heavens declare, but the glory of God. For they deliver to us such unanswerable arguments for a conscious, intelligent, planning, controlling, and presiding creator that no unprejudiced person can remain unconvinced by them. The testimony given by the heavens is no mere hint, but a plain and unmistakable declaration, and it is a declaration of the most constant and abiding kind. The heavens are so vast and mighty that throughout history we find mankind has not worshipped God, the God of the heavens, but heavens as God. They worship certain stars, constellations they have done in the past. But what does David say here in verse 1? The sky above or the firmament above, it declares what? It proclaims his handiwork. All that we see in the heavens have been masterfully put there by the, by the great hand of God. Why worship something less than the creator himself? Himself. All that we see in creation is the beautiful artwork of the master designer who is bigger than all of creation. And I find it, I've always found this interesting, is that man gets these telescopes and he goes further back uh, out into space and he just realizes there's an infinite number here, an infinite number there, and yet scripture tells us that God has all of the stars named. (laughs) He's got them all named and numbered. And so Uh, It's a sad thing that the blindness of man's heart causes him to refuse to give God the glory of such splendor. I watched one of the NASA people describing uh, how how awesome their technology is and how awesome all these stars are. This whole long conversation, but not one time mention the name of God. It's a sad thing. But you and I can take it and use man's technology and see the glory of what it really is. Presents us. Notice with me, number letter B. Not only is creation an unmistakable witness, it is also an inescapable witness. It's inescapable. Now, notice what David says in verse 2 and verse 3. He says, Day to day pours out speech, 
Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Now, what is, what is speech doing? I'm speaking to you right now using speech. What does speech do? It's communicating something, communicating something, right? And so what is David saying here? He's saying that creation, what we see in the heavens, day by day communicates, speaks to humanity. What does it speak to humanity? It speaks to humanity and communicates the knowledge, wisdom, and power of the Creator. Now, the reference to day and night here refers to everything visible in the heavens during the day and at night. They are a continuous testimony of God's handiwork. Whether you've got the sun out, the blue skies, you look up, God's handiwork. If the sun's not out and it's dark here, you look up, still God's handiwork. Uh, every, every aspect of every day. And there's no time of day when this is not seen. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says they are witnesses Above, the witnesses above cannot be slain or silenced. From their elevated seats, they constantly preach the knowledge of God, unawed and un, unbiased by the judgments of men. So creation's constantly speaking, and it doesn't matter what man says or thinks or judges. Creation still says the same message. The infinite design of God in His creation. Now you study any aspect of creation, and you will learn... It was designed with intrinsic detail to function a certain way and continues to function in that way. Voltaire, who was a famous French atheist, said this, The world embarrasses me. I cannot think that this watch exists and has no watchmaker. And that's really one of the fundamental realities, is that you cannot look at creation and just think that it created itself. It's like looking at this building and saying, oh, the wood and the material and the roof and the electric and the plumbing, it all just happened by chance to make itself, right? We know that there was an intelligent person that made it, and the same thing applies to creation. And so even the atheist cannot come around this argument that there must be a designer, even though they will deny that argument. Now, David continues in verse 3, and he says, there is no speech, there, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Now, whose voice is he speaking of? The voice of the heavens. The voice of creation is a universal language to all humanity. Now, that's something, right? If I, if I go down to Mexico and try to preach the gospel, there's going to be a language barrier. They're not going to understand me. But here's the reality is that the language of creation, it's universal. It has no language barriers. It has no language barriers. It doesn't matter where you are, what culture you're raised in, or what language you speak. Anywhere you are in the world, creation testifies to the glory of God. When I was in Israel, while my family was back in Kentucky, I would go up and look out at the night sky at dark and just think and ponder the reality that I'm thousands of miles away from them, but I look up and I'm looking at the same sky, even though it may not have been nighttime there when it was in Israel, but we're looking at the same creation. We're looking. We're on the same world. And so the heavens are viewed the same. In America, in Europe, in Africa, Asia, Australia, no matter what you say, no matter where you are, the voice of creation screams with an unrestrained emphasis to every inch of this world. The powerful creator. It's a universal language to all humanity. Isaiah the prophet writes in Isaiah 40 verse 26 and says, Lift up your eyes on high and see. This is God speaking. 
Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So we think of anywhere on this planet, and man sees the glory of God in creation, whether he gives the glory to God or not, the glory that is from God flows. You look at verse 4, he continues that same thought. Their voice, whose voice? The voice of the heavens, the voice of creation. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now, this is why mankind is without excuse before God of giving him glory for his creation. Now, look at Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 through 20 for a moment. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 through 20. This is often, often referenced in, in light of God's natural creation, natural revelation. Romans 1, verse 18 through 20, and Paul writes this, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. There's just no way around what Paul says here, that mankind is without excuse because God has declared his infinite power and his eternal nature by the very fact of his creation around us. And to go further than that, Beyond creation, we could put in another aspect, is his revelation in conscience. The fact that man is ingrained with a conscience that is rooted in the law of God. Why is it that uh, there are some cultures that do not have Bibles, but yet at the same time, they know that it's wrong to murder. Know that it's wrong to steal, wrong to kill, wrong to do certain things. Because mankind has been given a conscience that testifies to the law of God that he has written for us. So you'll notice this. They are without excuse for their rebellion and their rejection towards God. And this is why David also says in Psalm 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. And as you look at that text, there's even more to it than that for Essentially, the Hebrew language is saying the fool says no God. He doesn't want God. He doesn't want God. And the reason that there is such a thing as an atheist is because he in his heart does not want God. He does not want God. And the main reason for that is he does not want to be accountable to God. He wants to live in his sin and have his own selfish, sinful life. So those who, those who hold the power of technology to behold with their eyes the infinite wonder of creation and yet deny God's glory in it are going to have a rude awakening on Judgment Day. For God has created all things for His glory and His pleasure and He's worthy of that glory. If you come on down to verse 4 again and look at verse 4, the latter part of verse 4, you come down through verse 6, David goes into a specific aspect of the sun. Okay, and the sun it has significance as it will connect us to the next section. But notice that he says, in them, that is in the heavens, in the firmament, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. 
Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hid from its heat. Now you'll notice that David describes uh, the sun in this verse 4 as having its own place in the night. In them he set a tent for the sun, meaning the sun's radiance is hidden during the night as it moves around the world, right? God set the world in motion with a lesser light to rule the night, the moon, and a brighter light to rule the day, which is the sun. Now the sun's shining on a different part of the world while the moon is out on a different, uh, the other, other part of the world. Uh, and so the sun here keeps its course as God ordained it, showing the glory of God. And so in verse 5, he says, The sun comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course. This poetic description of God's motion for the sun and its power. And so during the day, what do we find? In verse 6, that nothing is hidden from its heat. During the day, the sun dominates, putting all those vast stars out of sight, right? Can't see the stars during the day. The sun radiates the earth, keeping it warm, causing everything to grow for the benefit of mankind. What a witness the heavens are to the glory of God. So creation is an unmistakable natural revelation of God's glory, and it is an inescapable revelation of God's glory. But that brings us to number two. Notice with me, we see not only the natural revelation of God, we see the specific revelation of God. The specific revelation of God. Now, sometimes this is also called the special revelation of God. You'll see it referenced in a couple different ways, specific or special. And what this revelation of God is, is referring to the Word of God, the Scriptures that we have. The inspired Word of God that He's given to us uh, are the specific or special revelation of God. Because what do the Scriptures do for us? They give us far more than what creation teaches us, right? If the natural revelation of, of creation is not enough to give us salvation. We need specific knowledge of what the gospel is, of what God has done for us in Christ. And natural revelation doesn't communicate that. So notice with me two things about this quickly. Notice the work of the scriptures. The work of the scriptures. While creation gives us that general and natural revelation of God, we need something more specific to truly know God intimately in our hearts. Natural revelation is not enough. Salvation requires specific revelation from his written word. As we read in Romans ten seventeen, what did Paul write? He said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? That's how it happens. So in the flow of this passage, this revelation of the heavens, especially the work of the sun, actually connects to the work of the scriptures. And I liked how this commentary, I think it's by Alan Ross, uh, puts this together. He says the two parts, he's talking about the first part of natural revelation and the second part of specific revelation, the two parts belong together. Because the sun imagery gives unity to the whole composition. If the sun is the most glorious gift of the creator for physical life, the word of Yahweh is the most glorious gift for the spiritual life. And if the sun dominates life and illumines everything under it, the word dominates every aspect of the spiritual life and the physical life as well all the time. There is no physical life without the Son. There is no spiritual life without the Word. I thought he had a good way of putting that and connecting the two together. So the specific revelation of God in the Scriptures 
glorifies the one who gave it to us and reveals him to us that we may know him intimately and who are changed by him in our life. Now, David gives us some of the most descriptive truths about the Word of God and what it does in verse nine or verse seven through verse nine. Now, we could do a whole other sermon on how how we got the Word of God and how God brought the Word of God together, how He used men to author it under the inspiration of the Spirit over a span of fourteen hundred or fifteen hundred years, and and all of that. But this is what David focuses on 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 what the Word of God does and what it is. Now look at verse 9, verse 7 through 9. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, the scriptures here. Scriptures David described contextually would he would be talking about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant law, but more broadly, more broadly we would see this and apply to the whole of God's completed Scripture, the whole of God's canon, Old Testament and New Testament, and this is how God's people know God intimately, not just instinctively through natural revelation. Now, natural revelation can tell us about a sovereign, powerful God who created all things. But specific revelation tells us about the personal covenant God, Yahweh, who revealed his will and his plans for his people. Now, notice the terms David uses to describe the scriptures. He uses the words law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, rules. All of those are reference to the word of God. Now, some of those terms have varying aspects that apply to scripture, but by and large, they are a summarization of the Word of God. So notice what he says the Word of God does. It firstly does the work of reviving the soul. Reviving the soul. Now, that Hebrew word is translated differently in various translations. For, for example, the King James will have converting the soul. The NASB will have restoring the soul. The ESV here has reviving the soul. So in simple terms, when you look at this word, it refers to God's law turning someone unto himself turning someone unto the Lord. And when one is turned unto the Lord, what is given them? Life. One has life when they are turned unto the Lord, who is life. So, so the word law here, often it's, it's thought of as the strict rules and condemnation of the Old Testament, right? And that is true. But the law also includes instructions for sacrifice and atonement. So through the law, what do you have? You have both of God's wrath and His mercy instructed through this. So, so, so what we find here is that it is only through God's special or specific revelation, His Word, that we find life, that we are turned unto God. And specifically, in light of the New Testament, through the gospel message of Jesus Christ, it is through His Word that sinners are turned unto Him that we are no life. Now, 1 Peter 1 and verse 23 through 25 will kind of convey this to us. 1 Peter 1, verse 23 through 25 for a moment. Notice what Peter writes here. He's just talked about how we are ransomed, we're redeemed, not with the things of this world, but with the things that are of Christ, not with perishable things, but with the blood of Christ. But he come on down here and he talks about how we are converted unto him in verse 23. He says, since you have been born again, you remember what Jesus said, 
except one is born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. There is no spiritual life without the new birth. So he says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So we understand that our new birth comes about through what? Through the word of God, in conjunction with who? With the spirit of God. And so when we think about the law of God reviving the soul, giving life to the soul, that's what we see. This is the central plan of God for His glory through the Scriptures. But you'll notice further what the Word of God does. He says the testimony of the Lord makes wise the simple. Now, we all start out as simple and in need of wisdom. The simple here is referencing a, a naive person or someone who is young, who has had no training and is without knowledge or discipline, who wanders and into all kinds of danger. So I would consider my own children, they would be in a simple state, right? Uh, I wouldn't trust them just to play outside by themselves near a road or go to the beach and not have any supervision. They need someone to watch over them because they often will easily wander into danger. We're all like that spiritually, right? But as we grow in the Word of God, what does it do? It grows us in wisdom, and we learn the dangers of sin, and we learn how we ought to live with wisdom and knowledge as God has given it to us. We learn more about God and how to live properly for God in His Word. So you'll not learn this kind of wisdom except through the Word of God. This is what wisdom calls out to us for. Proverbs 8, 5, wisdom is crying out here, and it says, O simple ones learn prudence, O fools learn sense. Wisdom through that chapter calls out, come to me, come to me. And how is it that we know wisdom? We know it firstly through the word of God, the testimony of the Lord. Notice thirdly that his word also causes rejoicing to the heart. Rejoicing to the heart, he says, the Precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now, the word of God brings great joy to the heart of the one who knows him. Haven't you experienced that, Christian? Don't you get joy out of the word of God? You do. We get joy out of reading scripture, of hearing scripture. It rejoices the heart. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 162, I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. Fourthly, the Word of God is enlightening to the eye. It enlightens the eyes. You see, God's Word unveils truth that was at one time unseen. You know, there's a lot of people in the world that believe in God. They can't deny that God exists and He's there. But then you come to the Scriptures and they realize, oh, there's so much more than just knowing God exists. I'm a wretched sinner who has sinned against the Holy Creator. And I'm in need of forgiveness and salvation, which is only in Christ. So, so the word of God brings enlightening to the eyes, not just for salvation, but also as you grow, you, you realize how deep and inexhaustible the word of God is. And he gives us understanding of his ways and purposes. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 18, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. That's what we ought to pray when we read the Bible. Open my eyes to see wonderful things in your word. So these descriptions manifest the work of God's specific revelation of what it does. What it does, okay? So his word brings supernatural work to man's heart, which in turn does what? 
glorifies him. His specific revelation always comes back to glorifying him. That's what it does. But notice with me letter B, not only do we see the work of the scriptures, we see the worth of the scriptures, the worth of them, the value of them. Now, through these verses and on down to verse 10, we see the great worth of the Bible. Now, why is the Bible so valuable? What does David say? How is it that he describes the Word of God through these texts? He says the Word of God is perfect. He says it is sure. He says it is right. He says it is pure. He says it is clean. It is enduring forever. It is true and righteous altogether. This describes the worth of the Word of God and what it is. What else in the world has that kind of a description? Anything? Can we think of anything else in the world that has that kind of a description? I can't think of anything. Can you? Only the Word of God does. There's nothing so perfect as the Word of God and His gospel. God's Word remains as it has been written, and it has not been changed or altered or destroyed. It will never fade or fail, just as Peter wrote just a moment ago. But we just read that. When you look at the Word of God, and how David describes such a book, would not such a book bring great glory to whoever wrote it? To whoever wrote it. Absolutely it does. Now, we could think of a lot of great books throughout history. Uh, one of the most notable ones is uh, written by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Many of us have probably read that, read that book or, or seen that, uh, that movie. He's a Christian author. Uh, but it sold, old, it sold over 85 million copies. Now, when a book sells over 85 million copies, that is a testament to the skill, imagination, and writing of the author, C.S. Lewis. Some other books have sold well over 200 million copies, and even some have crossed the 500 million copies barrier. But not one best-selling book in all of history has ever been sold as much as the Bible, nor does any other book in all of history have the descriptions that God gives the Word of God here, that David pins, that it is perfect and sure and clean and enduring, all of these things. Notice with me as we look on further at the worth of the Scriptures. Look at verse 10. I love verse 10. He says of the Scriptures, of God's specific revelation, more to be desired are they than what? Than gold. Now, especially in David's day, what was more valuable than gold? I mean, gold was the chief, most valuable thing you could have. Gold. More to be desired they than gold, even than fine gold, right? Fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. When we think about the contrast here, if one could choose between having a brick of gold and a Bible, what would one choose? What would we choose? We would have to choose the Word of God. Now, the world today, if you try to hand them a Bible, a brick of gold, say goodbye to the Bible. They're taking the gold. But once you come to know the Creator who has revealed all these things to us through His Word, His Word's more precious to us than gold. Psalm 119.72, the law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. Than thousands of gold and silver. But then he goes on to say, it's sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. How sweet is honey? that I could survive without honey. <laughs> honey is sweet, right? It, it, it's a delicious delicacy sought by man to enjoy. So we thank God for honey. God's word 
is sweeter to the soul than honey is to the taste. Honey, how wonderful that is. God's word is sweet in the enrichment and satisfaction of life that it brings to the faithful believer. And its sweetness increases its desirability day by day. There's times when I'm studying scripture and and I wonder, firstly, how did I never see that before that is so rich and so wonderful? But that richness and, and sweetness of the Word of God just prompts me to want more and to want more and to want more. That's what the Word of God is to His people. And the reason it is this to us is because the Word of God truly is from the Almighty. As Scripture says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. God's specific revelation of himself through his written word glorifies him. God is glorified in his word through how it works in us and its worth to us. But notice with me number three, and I'll try to be quick. I want you to see the response to God's revelation. The response to God's revelation because David, he shows us this natural revelation of God and this specific revelation of God in his word, but then he shows us his own heart and application in light of these things. And when we look at the revelation of God, both natural and specific, it ought to impact our hearts. It ought to challenge us. It ought to convict us. Now, here's two things he brings out about this, is that God's people need cleansing from sin. God's revelation points this out to us, that God's people need cleansing from sin. As David brought us through natural and specific revelation, he shows us his response in verse 11. And he says, Moreover, by them, by your word, your servant is warned. In keeping of them, there is great reward. See, through God's word, his people are warned of the wages of sinfulness and the reward of obedience. We're taught the gospel of Christ. We're taught salvation through him, sanctification through him. Contextually, we must understand that David here, he is a saved man already. One who has been redeemed and cleansed positionally before God. And that is our position as well in Christ. We've already been sanctified and set apart, cleansed in him. We've been washed in his blood. But David brings us to also a practical sanctification of believers that brings God's glory. We find warnings about sin and truth about reward in verse 11. We find our need for cleansing and how to have it in verse 12. Look at verse 12. He says, who can discern his errors... Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Now, he asks a rhetorical question here about himself. Who can discern his errors? You know what David's speaking of? He's speaking of his own sins of ignorance that are not immediately known to him. These are not premeditated transgressions of God's law, but nevertheless, they are still sins. They are still transgressions of his law. And what does David know? He knows that he needs cleansing, and he asks the Lord, Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Hidden faults, those faults that were hidden from him, that he did not see immediately. Now, this certainly is true for all of us, isn't it? Why is that? Because even as Christians, we all have blind spots in our life, don't we? We all have sins of ignorance, things that we don't immediately recognize in our life on a day-to-day basis. And how is it that we may discover those sins and seek cleansing? Firstly, through God's special revelation, His Word. 
See, just as the sun permeates the whole earth, so the law of God searches the heart, exposing the sin that is there, that is hidden away. And to add to this, I believe like David, we can pray and ask God to help us and search our hearts as we abide in His Word. If you go read Psalm 139, 23 through 24, that's where David prays that. He asks the Lord, search me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous or wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So in our response to God's revelation here, we recognize we need cleansing from what He's revealed. We need His forgiveness, and in this He is glorified. But notice with me, letter B. Not only do we see that God's people need cleansing, but we also must consecrate from sin. God's people must consecrate themselves from sin. Notice what David prays in verse 13. He says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. He recognizes his own danger and his own nature. As you look at the life of David, it's easy to see. There were sins that he had fallen into. He knows that presumptuous sins are willful sins. Now often... We are tempted to willfully sin against God, thinking that, oh, it's not that big a deal. Oh, all will be fine. Oh, this only affects me. Those are presumptuous sins. But David's prayer is that such sins will not have dominion over him. And Christian, this is to be the heart and resolve of all of us, that we are at war with sin. We are at war with sin in our life. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, Romans 6.12, Let not sin therefore reign over your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Let it not do that. That's a call to mortify, a call to wage war against sin in your life. Don't give in to presumptuous sins. Because if you don't intentionally pursue God and fight against sin, you will give heed to it because that's your nature and your humanity. And what glory does God get in such things? Now David here wants to be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And that is what God's revelation helps lead him to do. It sanctifies him. It sanctifies him. As Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17, 17, he said, sanctify them through what? Through your truth. Your word is truth. Notice lastly in verse 14, David's prayer. And this, this prayer is one that would be a good one for us to start our days with. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What a heart that reveals in David. The words of my mouth, do they please God? The meditations of my heart, that which is inside. So you have that which is flowing outside, that which is inside. Are they acceptable in God's sight? And friend, when we truly seek to walk acceptably in God's sight in this manner, as this psalm describes to us, God is glorified. And the only way that this happens is because of God's revelation of himself to us. This all stems back to the fact that God chose to reveal himself to his humanity. And I want you to understand that his revelation to him, of himself to his people, that is an act of mercy. 
it is an act of mercy and grace in itself. God did not have to tell us anything. He could have condemned us all with no hope of salvation. Jesus still would have been loving and holy and just. But instead, he gave us revelation. We see his revelation of himself in creation, naturally. But more importantly, we see his revelation specifically in the word of God. And that brings us to have a response to that revelation. 